0: Welcome back. This is Phil Nowicki from Helen DeVos Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this is Tyler McDonald from the University of South Alabama. And this is the second part of our two-part IPOS 2023 programming. We've got some more great faculty interviews ahead, so please enjoy.
1: We are back in the podcast booth at IPOS 2023. This is Tyler McDonald. And I'm joined by Dr. Todd Milbrandt. Dr. Milbrandt, how's it going?
2: It's going great. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you and to the
1: audience. So you kind of have a unique viewpoint as you've helped lead this conference in the past. Uh, What do you see are the biggest offerings this year? And what are you most looking forward to at IPOS 2023 this year?
2: Yeah, it's... Uh, I view IPOS as a smorgasbord, and if you don't, if you're not from the north, that's basically a dish where you can have anything that you ever wanted, <laughs> all in one place. So if you wanted, uh, if you want to learn about ponsetti, there'll be people here teaching you hands on about ponsetti. If you want to learn about spine debates about what levels to stop at or how to make your patient uh, do better post operatively, you can see that here too. And so I would think that. That's the groundwork that we work off of every year at IPOS, but the topics change, and so there are some new and unique things here. Um, we Last year, we tried um, this thing called Ponseti on the go, which is happening right here in this other room, which is allows people to learn how to do in a quick, very quick, this is how to do Ponseti casting. That's been expanded to Halo application, for example, and so it's it's the tenant of this meeting to really get hands-on and shoulder-to-shoulder between faculty and participants that you can really learn from the experts and those opportunities are just one of the many that we can see that I think are make this very unique uh, in it's uh, a very unique meeting in the broad spectrum of what people have to choose from. And then we've always been working against quite frankly the uh, the reputation that IPOS is a resident and fellows course. Yes, that's how it started, and yes, that's who likes to come to this for sure, but uh, I think that if you want to hear about the best clinical care in pediatric orthopedics, you need to come here. Uh, we saw then a needs assessment, uh, which, if anybody's interested, is on our website uh, in its full detail, but our needs assessment gave us uh, some insight that people want clinical care. Uh, education uh, at meetings. Uh, unfortunately, our annual meeting, since we've shrunk it up and people don't want to be here on Saturday and we want to give people some time off on a Thursday, there's not a lot of room left to do both of our science component, which we are obligated and interested to make sure our, our field moves forward, and do large sessions of clinical care. It just can't, you'd have two weeks worth of a meeting in order to do that. So what we what we I've been trying to promote is this idea that IPOS is not just for resident fellows. If you want to get, if you want to learn about how to do things, you come to IPOS. If you want to learn about what's coming on the next horizon, you're going to go to the annual meeting about and and learn about the science. So, uh, and sukin has been very, Dr. Shaw's been very smart about this, is he's created a whole subsection for mid-career people who want to come. There's a separate curriculum. Yes, they can still do all the shoulder-to-shoulder learning like our uh, residents and fellows do, but also there, there's a separate section for them to learn about, you know, how to run a department, how to interact with leadership to get what you need in your local places. How do you negotiate call uh, amongst your group? And, and I think that those are the topics, in addition to the actual hard science, that create an added benefit for people like that to come. Those are kind of the big highlights for me this year. Plus, it's, you know, 60 degrees out and it's not freezing <laughs> cold where it is at yeah, home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where, where I'm from.
1: That's right. A good time of year to have this at a great location for those folks up north. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So how does the planning committee keep the sessions and the offerings fresh year after year from from, from getting stale? So if you went to IPOS last year, you won't be, you know, feeling bored with the same content the next year. It is an interesting
2: thing. The good news for us in pediatric orthopedics is that we have such a broad spectrum of topics from uh, toes to nose, really, that we can cover that. Um, that our program committee and now Derek and uh, Sukan have put together, but then we also mix and match and pollinate our subspecialties. I think at the annual meeting, you're going to go to the hip section papers, and that's all you're going to hear about. Here, we've we've tried to make the what makes pediatric orthopedics so great. You know, have the hip experts talk about talk with the cerebral palsy experts, and we talk about hip and CP, so that then we can really come up with great ways to take care of our patients better and so uh, I think that we're always looking to innovate that's why some things are on the program one year and not on the other because it didn't go so well but if you're not failing some of the time with our educate with your educational offerings uh, then I then you're not innovating quickly there have been some things that we tried it didn't go like we tried virtual reality one year and the setup was cool but in terms of like did it make a, a big impact? It really didn't. So that's why we're back to low-fidelity models like the sawbones and, uh, and the clubfoot model. It, this is a, a classroom of education and not just a lecture hall because we really do want to push it and keep our reputation as the best orthopedic meeting, not just the best pediatric orthopedic meeting, but the best orthopedic meeting that's out there.
1: And uh, And I think that they do that very successfully. Yeah, well, just as, a, as an attendant for a few years, I can say that, um, honestly, I get more out of it now than I did as a resident, you yeah. know, because you actually have something to Some stick on. You've got a patient you're yeah. thinking about maybe, so.
2: And in addition to that, there are uh, opportunities to bring cases to uh, places like this. So if you have a really hard case and you want to uh, read Nichols to think about how to realign that limb or how to reconstruct that lower deformity, you can then have a find her because we're all very accessible and you have a meeting there are also lunchtime learnings where you can bring cases too so it's not just a one-way street because i learn from those interactions all the time too it's really
1: trying to facilitate conversations well earlier you kinda mentioned the uh Ponsetti on the go that's happening right behind us right now. I know tomorrow you've got a, a talk with the title Five Things Never to Do When Casting Club Feet, which uh, kinda sounds like internet clickbait. So yeah, give us what are those <laughs> what are those uh, those top key things not to do when we've got a little baby with club feet we're putting Ponsetti casts on. So I mean I think my
2: biggest Perfect. biggest yeah. point is it starts long before you do the casting. You need to have a serious conversation with the family, serious so that they know that this is a journey and that you're going to be there with that family, but it's going to be, at first, hard on me because I do all the casting, but then it's going to be hard on them to keep the bracing going because you can be the best caster in the world, and if they don't wear the brace... It's you're going to have terrible results. I mean, Ponsetti has shown that, and I know personally, and I've experienced that where families just couldn't do it. And so you really need to counsel, counsel, counsel long before you even hit the cast room. Um, and so I think that will set you up for much more success than any tip or trick that I'm going to give you about club casting. The second is um, we have some data from a trial that I ran a long time ago that says, Uh, that keeping a baby quiet will give you a better cast. And so if you could use sugar water on a pacifier, which is what they use in the NICU when they do heel sticks and other things, that's where we kind of got that from. It's not rocket science. Lots of people use sugar water to keep tiny babies quiet. But they really respond, especially if you're casting a two-week-old. They still have that opioid Receptor that gets clicked off when you give them some sweeties, that it can really make the casting a lot easier on you. And then my other tips or tricks are really about you need to make this cast fit like an Italian shoe and not like a moon boot, right? (laughs) So it needs to be molded to the child. Uh, That's a good heel mold, a good arch mold, a good uh, thigh compression to keep the, the cast on. And usually, if you can do all those things, the casts don't fall off. Uh, unless you are doing a revision like in a 15 month, you know, 12 or 13 month old, where they got those big thunder thighs, or six month old, sorry. If they have a big thunder thighs, then that makes that cast way harder. That's really, they asked me for five, but in reality, it's three. Uh, it's a good molded cast, it's a, uh, a comfortable child, and then doing the counseling before.
1: Well, I think that about wraps it up for the time we have here. So uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for stopping by. And uh, thanks for uh, giving us those words
2: of wisdom. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate it. And that's just a shout out to all those big career people out there. IPOS is for you. All right. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. Yeah, we appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it, too. All right, we're back in the booth again at IPOS 2023. I'm Tyler McDonald, and I'm joined with Phil Nowicki here. We've got Kishore Mulpuri in the booth today to uh, give us some insight. How's it going? Good, thank you.
0: Kishore, you um, t- had a great talk on uh, osteogenesis and perfection and Petrugio uh, this morning. It was fantastic. I didn't even think about thinking of the hip in OI before. Tell us the you know, thoughts about screening for Petrugio and your OI kids like
3: early on, or what is your thoughts? Uh, so I'll, I'll be totally honest. I mean, this is, I've taken care of a lot of OI. My first publication is actually in OI. About a year ago, because we don't have a huge volume, I transitioned my OI practice, which is very dear to me, to a, a colleague and a friend of mine, to Tony Cooper. So I still see some residual patients that I've been taking care of from before. And I know protrusio is a problem. I have had one kid that had a femoral neck fracture, and uh, I showed a case, I did a Wagner, which is K wires, bend them down, put a surplus wire. But thanks to IPOS, I learned a lot. And when they asked me to talk about, can you do something, is when I got thinking, okay, what are all the problems? What's known and uh, what's not known? And I learned about pseudo-Petrusio-Estabulum and the difference between that and true, uh, true petrusio album, Not necessarily something you may be able to prevent, but you need to be aware and screen and monitor. Certainly now, I would be more, much more vigilant about what I do. So this goes to show IPOS is not just learning for people that come in. For a lot of the time, people don't realize for faculty, it's a huge amount of learning actually trying to think through and prepare. And all three topics that I presented, especially two, the one on SMA and one on DDH, is actually given me for five years more to 10 years more of work in terms of trying to answer the questions that need to be answered. So where are we at
0: with SMA screen now? We're just doing the reconstructions, and what are your thoughts on registries?
3: Yeah, so I think in general as, um, you know, maybe, maybe to back up and talk about, I call them the orphan hip conditions. And we all know, like say DDH, we house a large global hip dysplasia registry. We have one on uh, slip cap femoral epiphysis. Texas, they've got one on Perthes disease. We've got one anchor group that's looking at you know late dysplasia to young adult dysplasia. But there are like, probably 30 odd different hip conditions, like septic arthritis, sequelae, hip dislocations, femoral neck fractures, and Down syndrome hips, arthrogrypotic hips, CMT hips, SMA hips, we have zero prospective data. Most of us, when patients come and ask us questions about, hey, um, doc, can you tell me what you're going to do for this child? And you will say, this is what I would do. And that's based on my experience of treating four kids. And we keep telling families, we have no evidence to, or we have no pointers to suggest what to do. So SMA is a good example. And we need to learn lessons from each other. The only way we can is we pull data. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I did clinical epidemiology. I love clinical trials. I've done clinical trials. There are people that say, well, if you don't do clinical trials, then it's not worth doing research. Not unless you get observational data to start with, you can start to tease out what controversies need to be studied by doing randomized controlled trials. So in SMA right now, all we need to do is to gather all of our data, so we at least know who is doing what, and if so, what are the results of those conditions and those treatments first. So I think it's a great first step that we, under the banner of HIP Hope Network, which stands for HIP Health Outcomes in Pediatrics, we currently have about 400 people that are signed up from 28 different countries, and the whole concept is We need to put pediatric orphan hip conditions and understanding its knowledge on hormones. We cannot just simply be telling our patients, I only treat five, so I don't know what to do.
0: Um, Being a lifelong learning for both faculty and attendees, what uh, what things have you learned? I post
2: 2023.
3: Well, I would say every time I come, there is one smartest guy that inspires me to be thinking more and doing more than John Schoenecker. I don't know how every year he comes up with new concepts. So if you ask me what I've learned, obviously I've learned a lot about periostim last year. I've learned a lot about periostim this year. But I think I learned a lot about this year, about macrophages, neutrophils, oxygen, tension, and about multi-organ dysfunction as it relates to infection. So I think it's really, and, and trauma, so I think it's really critical that we become physicians or MDs first before we become surgeons and subspecialized surgeons. Having a broad knowledge rather than assuming that somebody else will take care of that for you when you're in the operating room or when you're in emergency department, I would say that's a big takeaway for me. Obviously, there are a lot of other little pearls that in every session you're at, you're picking something
1: new. Awesome. Well, that's about all the time we have for uh, now. Thanks for joining us. Thank for the you. Visit, and uh, we'll see you around the rest of the week. Fantastic. Thanks for doing this.
0: All right. Well, we're back again from the podcast booth. Uh, it's Phil Nowicki, and I'm joined
1: with Tyre McDonald and uh, Tony Riccio from Scottish Rite. Right. Tony, you're, one of, um, you're leading some of the hands-on sessions at this conference, and yesterday when we were doing some interviews, uh, we
4: could peek into the room behind us, and it was jam-packed. Yeah, I think the hands-on stuff that's offered here is absolutely phenomenal, and, and you know, there's a lot of younger learners who come to the IPOS meeting. Uh, residents who are trying to figure out if they might want to pursue a career in pediatric orthopedics and uh, maybe they haven't had quite the clinical exposure to some of the stuff that we see day in and day out. Um, and one of those things is clubfoot casting. It's A lot of faculty find it hard to really teach, start to finish the proper way to do the Ponseti method and cast a clubfoot to a very junior resident who is kind of still acquiring just the fundamental knowledge of what a clubfoot is and how you even start to think about approaching it, never mind the technical aspects of correcting the deformity. And so this is an opportunity for them really to, you know, nuts and bolts, start to finish, see the deformity, put their hands on the deformity, understand where the anatomy is. Where is that tailor head? Why is it lateral? How does rotating that internally correct for varus? Even you know all the way up to the point where we have uh, simulated heel cord tenotomies to kind of let them actually get a knife in their hands, uh, in a very safe environment, and assess their ability to you know safely um, do a heel cord tenotomy without compromising the the nerve vascular structures that are nearby, and so it. it what it does is, I think it. I think it enlightens them. I think it inspires them. I think like, getting their hands on a model in a very collegial environment um, really turns them on to something that they may have seen once or twice, probably as an observer, not as an actual technician. And it puts them in that technician role, so the learning is accelerated um, because of that. And it's just, a, and they love it, and it is. They're packed. The hands-on stuff here is really, really packed.
0: Did you notice a lot of uh, some of the physician centers or the APPs also involved in? Yeah,
4: the I centers? think there's a lot. It's hard, you know, it's hard uh, to know who's it's, – it's, it's, it's a big meeting, right? And um, you can kind of get a sense of who the, the residents are just by virtue of the questions they ask. You kind of can get a sense of who the AP the mid-levels are because they tend to ask higher-level questions. They tend to be more <laughs> experienced. Um but yeah, I think there's a there's a good number of kind of mid-level provider type folks who kind of take an opportunity to engage that. And I don't and it's institutional. I think at uh, certain institutions, the mid levels, you know, they might be involved in the assessment of the patient and the, the management of the, say, bracing in a club foot patient, but not necessarily the hands-on aspect. So it, it, again, it kind of fills that knowledge gap for them if they don't, because this is their opportunity to really see what the maybe the surgeon they're working with is doing and and do it themselves. Now, for those who do CAT, my nurse practitioner, she will cast patients alongside me and with me and and for me when I'm away. Um, It it lets them refine their skills. So I think it's really valuable to them as well.
1: You something um, that always gives me a little anxiety when I look at my clinical schedule is the kids with arthrogryposis coming in with with the foot deformities. And I know yesterday you talked a little bit about the challenges in that realm. Um, For the listeners at home, can you give us a couple pearls from that talk on kind of what to look out for and and
4: what you're thinking about yeah that so the challenges in the, the the truth of the matter is is it's it's not what's challenging about the arthropotic foot it's like what isn't challenging about the arthropotic mm-hmm. foot um you know these kids they have they have a, a soft tissue disease that causes rigidity basically not and, and not just of the capsular structures of the the tendonous structures, the ligamentous structures, even, even some rigidity of the skin, which can lead to kind of soft tissue problems, especially when you're putting skin under tension by correcting rather severe deformities at times. And so it, it's a daunting uh, it's a daunting problem. But you know, one thing about foot deformities in those kids is it's not hard to make the diagnosis. They either have a club foot, they have a congenital vertical talus or they have one of each. And knowing what to do, at least your initial treatment plan, isn't that challenging either, because we still apply the Ponseti method to these infantile deformities. It's after that that things kind of start to fall apart. Their deformities tend to be very atypical. They have a lot of what we'll call angular cavus as opposed to rotational cavus, which is what we see in the idiopathic club foot. Uh, and the casting technique needs to be modified, really to appreciate the atypical nature of the deformity and systematically correct those atypical deformities, you can't just apply standard Ponseti method. And, and of course, every arthro foot is different. And so, you know, recurrence rates are much higher. Need for surgical intervention is therefore much higher because of the recurrences. We do soft tissue rebalancing as they get older in the form of, say, a tibialis anterior tendon transfer, but it doesn't, you know, because of the rigidity of the tissues, doesn't always quite work as well as it does in an neuropathic patient, probably because they don't have normal ankle range of motion. And even dealing with the finis, you've got to be prepared to do a heel cord tenotomy, and you might take them from, like, 70 degrees of finis up to 30 degrees of aquinas, but certainly not neutral. And so you got to be prepared to even apply casting afterwards to see if you can use stress relaxation to stretch the capsular tissues. And then, obviously, because of the multiple recurrences, multiple treatments, as they get older, you know, when you're kind of in the realm of having to reconstructive surgeries... You see all the stuff you see in the old set of idiopathic kids who used to have PMRs at a young age, right? Fusions at the subtalar joint, missing anatomy, maybe an a, maybe a, a tailor head and neck that's not there because it was, you know, iatrogenically injured under underwent an avascular event. And then you really, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough, like really thinking about the soft tissue envelope externally and how you're going to manage those soft tissues because there is a microvascular component to that disease that can cause issues with wound healing.
0: Any words of wisdom on casting foot deformities, whether it's eupathic or neuromuscular
4: or congenital? Um, Words of wisdom, it's like any, so it's funny, right? Like, I will let a resident do a heel cord tonotomy in my clinic. I'll let a third year resident do a heel cord tonotomy in a five week old, no problem. I think it's really easy to teach that. I can take my residents through cases in the operating room and teach them how to do a cavus foot reconstruction or a flat foot reconstruction. Clubfoot casting is a much harder skill to acquire. It it requires very careful attention to where every single finger is all the time, how to distribute forces while you're doing correction to apply skin problems. It's very nuanced. And so the only word of wisdom is uh, for those who want to Kind of not just do it, but do it and become excellent at it. Is align yourself with a teacher who does a lot of it, is really thoughtful about how they do it, is really adept at describing where problems are going to come up due to hand position or pressure that's applied, uh, and then just try and get as much as you can. Just it's 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 one of those things where you really can't learn how to do say an abduction cast a second or third cast until you've really mastered the supination cast the first cast and 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 you so you got to do 10 12 supination casts before you can even start to think of how things change with the second cast and then the dorsiflexion cast as i'm sure you guys know like it's not the most critical, but it is the most critical to do correctly because even after a tenotomy, you can create a rocker-bottom deformity if you're not really thoughtful about uh, dorsal the ankle through the hind foot. And so many earlier trainees just want to you know, pull up on the forefoot, and then with the capsular contraction that's still there um, after a tenotomy, you can, you can really create an atrogenic deformity that, that shouldn't be there. That's a no-no awesome perfect oh thank good. you we're good? good Yeah that's it Is that what you guys wanted <laughs> you was, that was easy okay that was great yeah, it was not hard <laughs> all right we're
1: back in the booth at ipos 2023 i'm tyler mcdonald and i got phil nowicki here helping me co-host we've got christine ho in the booth today talk to us a little bit about how it's been going so far and what we're looking forward to
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, This is great, you know, I don't know if you guys know, but back in the day when we first started doing these broadcasts, it was Posen Alive, and we did the first one at ePosen in Barcelona and they actually had me they had me co-host which was and it was we did it live on Facebook and so like this is just kind of I'm great to see it. this kind of full circle and yeah. it was the whole same sort of thing it was for the people who are at home to still you know see something and it was amazing we got like over a thousand views and I got the PL to like actually do a little bit of like dancing on camera which <laughs> Peter Waters was like there's no way I'm doing that You're do- and I was like you're doing it you're doing it we got the we had fine time to put the music up and we put our hands up and it was it that was awesome. great so this is like such an evolution and it's cool to see it's cool to see that, you know, because I listen to the podcast, you know, Perfect. whenever you guys send it out. It's always fantastic. Yeah.
0: So, Kristen, you were involved in the uh, Pete Sports Medicine Debate session uh, earlier this week. Give us your biggest takeaways from that session.
5: Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, they, I, you know, first of all, I don't know how I ended up in the sports session with everybody else, um, you know, and my task for that session was to argue, you know, that first time pediatric elbow dislocations need surgery, which is. They don't. Most of them don't. But I think it's important to know which ones do, right? So that's what we kind of went over. And there were some more spirited debates like with, um, it was Eric Edmonds and Min Coker debating about surgical versus conservative treatment of the first-time shoulder dislocation. You had Corinna uh, Franklin and Henry Ellis talking about the same with dis- you know instability. And then Javier Mosquito and uh, Maurice Bouchard talking about ankle instability and so I think that you know, you look at everybody who took the surgical side which was what our tasks were and I think all of us presented pretty compelling evidence based on literature and experience and yet still overwhelmingly when you pulled everybody conservative treatment of all of these sportsy joint instabilities and dislocations is still what people are going with a majority of the time mm-hmm. and I think that the important thing is you know knowing when you should intervene with surgery. So for, you know, I also gave another talk on elbow dislocations yesterday. And I think, you know, there are times that you do need to operate on a pediatric elbow dislocation. You know, one is in conjunction with a medial epicondyle fracture. I think there's absolutely 100% agreement that if it's incarcerated, you're going to pull it out and you're going to fix it. I think it's a little more controversial as to if it's now unincarcerated and somewhat within five millimeters of its anatomic bed, what you're going to do. I think most of us who do upper extremity and sports tend to want to fix that because like I said at the session, it's the best Tommy John surgery you're ever going to do. And when an elbow dislocates, you rupture so much of the soft tissue stabilizers that conferring some stability back to that is, you know, is necessary. Uh, I think that when you've got problematic fractures intraarticularly that need uh, to be fixed for stability. You know, and examples would be a radial head fracture, radial neck fracture, a lecronon fracture, and, of course, the meoepicondyle fracture. I think that those need to be fixed. I think if you see weird chitlins and slivers and flakes that you don't really know what that is, I think that warrants advanced imaging, so whether it's a CT or an MRI, because you don't know. Is it like an LUCL sleeve fracture that you need to... Back up? Is it an osteochondral fragment, especially in the younger kids, that's clunking in the joint and, and going to be a problem? Uh, and I think that, you know, you have every now and then we'll get a kid that comes in that they got their elbow reduced and that rayal capitella joint is still subluxed. And so I like to get advanced imaging even if I know I'm going in with surgery because it kind of gives you a roadmap of where to go. Like, what, how bad is that sleeve fracture? Is there bone attached to it? How bad is the medial injury? And so I think that those are kind of things that we have we've been able to. Hopefully I've been able to impart to people over, you know, because sometimes it's not just a simple pop it back in and the kid's going to do fine. And and of course, the other thing is these elbows all get really stiff. So regardless of what you do, you want to move them early, usually within 10 to 14 days. Do you do that with a brace? Yeah, yes. so that came up yesterday as well. And it was interesting uh, in the panel, um, you know, Don Bay and uh, I want to say um, Julie Samore both advocate for bracing after I actually don't. I kind of find that that hinge elbow brace, it never really quite fits. It doesn't really, It's the you know, the hinge is down in the forearm, and I don't really know that it's doing what it's supposed to do. And I think a lot of times because that hinge, you can't really quite get it where it needs to be. It actually limits their ability to get their motion back. I can definitely understand it constrains Tavares valgus in, in theory. But, you know, I think that there's – if you've got good, stable fixation, um, you know, I I get them moving without a brace at 14 days. I've had a couple that I've moved out to three weeks just because they were polytrauma. They were having to use that arm, and so I feel more comfortable than weight-bearing with a walker through a cast for that extra week before I get them moving. But, you know, I I don't use a brace because I just don't think that – we figured out a good way to brace the elbow.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm in the same camp as you. I every time the, they come in with a brace, it's never on correctly. Never on I'm, correctly. I'm, I'm, I'm the same way.
5: And you're just
0: like, what is this thing doing? <laughs> then do you do, um, do. You let the patient do dictate their their therapy at first, or do you let do you get the occupational therapist? Yeah. So
5: therapist? I. Um, and actually, there was pretty good consensus amongst yesterday's panel that we all kind of give the kids about a week or sorry a month four weeks to kind of get that motion back on their own. You know, I worry when you send them to the therapist that sometimes they're a little bit too aggressive. You know, there's so much soft tissue injury and, and it hurts. Right. So I think, you know, I get them out at 14 days, 10 to 14 days. I give them a sling and I say, you know, I want you, you don't need to wear the sling at home. you don't need to wear it. If you're sleeping, you don't need to wear it. If you're sitting at home, watching a movie with your family. But if you're at school, you're around your knuckleheaded buddies you're at a crowded area, whether it's, you know, mall, football, state, you need to wear that because it's a reminder to you and your knuckleheaded friends that you you have an injury that's still recovering, and you guys need to take it easy. That's my shield. You really got to gotta like the, those my knucklehead spiel friends. To every
0: single parent and kid that comes in the and in I the
5: tell them, court. I said, you don't seem like a knucklehead. I tell the family, I said, your kid seems like a nice kid, but I'm sure their friends are knuckleheads. <laughs> yeah. And the, I was like, oh yeah, the friends are the they are very knuckleheaded.
0: <laughs> so you you're know, just every patient is tight. a friend of someone else, right? right? T- <laughs> 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 and I always put it as as
1: you know your child better than I do.
5: Right. Uh, we just met. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> well, awesome. Well, I know uh, everyone's looking forward to the Preferred Techniques session coming up, and you're helping to moderate it this year. Give us maybe the one thing you're looking most forward to about that.
5: Yeah, so this is, uh, I've moderated, I think this is my second maybe time to, to moderate APT, as we call it. Um, and it's actually one of my favorite things to moderate. I've done a lot of moderating for, for Posen and other various meetings. And it's just so great because you really see what people are doing you know, there's high-quality video. There's, you know, great, you know, interop photos. So you can really, you know, look at that and think, well, maybe, you know, I could do, well, I don't know if I could do a VCR, but, like, a couple years ago, uh, Reed Nichols won for showing some sort of bunion surgery, okay? And I've never done a bunion since I left residency, but I left thinking, man, I could do that if I had to do that, right? And so, like, the best uh, APTs, I think, are the ones where you come out there thinking, I could actually do that, or I could watch this video a few more times, and this is explained so clearly to me that I feel like I, you know, have have the tools to do that. Another thing I think is really interesting is they always have a couple that are not necessarily surgical, but perhaps um, more of the softer skills. Uh, And that was actually last year's winner was Julie Samora talking about, you know, the second victim syndrome and what happens when you have a complication. And she really shared her journey with that and how she got through that. And I think that all of us have had that experience where, I mean, I'll wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and randomly think about a patient from five years ago that I think, man, I did not serve that patient well. Like, I wish I could go back and have done a better job or have prevented this or, you know, and so that second victim syndrome is, is real. And so it was really interesting because she went up against some real heavy hitters for APT. But, I mean, that that talk had such resonance with everybody that, I mean, it, it, it was the winner. Yeah. And it was not a surgical talk.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Christine. You're welcome. I uh, really, really appreciate uh, um, spending some time with us and uh, look forward maybe talking next year. Well, we're back again in the podcast. This is Phil Nowicki, and I'm joined uh, here with Howard McDonald uh, as my fellow co-host and also with uh, Reed Nichols. I'm here to discuss uh, some of the things that's been going on from her schedule at,
1: at IPOS. So what's been your most enjoyable experience so far at the conference and kind of your experience as faculty?
6: So the best part about being a faculty here is these people are amazing. They're amazing educators and they're awesome friends. And when you get in that position of faculty, you feel like, or at least personally, I feel like I've made it because there is so much interaction between people. And I think the same interaction not doesn't just happen between faculty, but it happens with the participants. And it doesn't matter what year in residency you are. I have had, I have two mentees. Um, they're at different parts of their careers. Um, and it's just fun to make new friends and to try to, to show them that we, I, my line is, we all put our pants to, on the same exact way. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter who you are here. You could be, you know, I remember a few years ago, I was sitting next to John Herzenberg. I, I don't even think I was in residency. I was in residency, maybe. But... I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that guy is sitting next to me and you know, you could tap him on the shoulder and ask a quick question." And he's like, "Oh, blah blah blah, no problem." So I feel like everyone here is absolutely geared to learning and camaraderie and really like bringing you into Ortho. and I just it's it's fun. It's really
0: fun. You said you've got two mentees. I've also done that previously. Then I post mentor mentee um, and I was I was teamed up with the incredible Um, Tony Herring, and it was an awesome year. Um, So as a mentee, it was fantastic. As a mentor, what has your experience been?
6: Every year I've done guided growth, and I usually get put with two people, which kind of is complimentary to me. I think they haven't written me off yet. But I like them to feel that they not only make, you know, this is a quick relationship. This isn't like the POSNA mentor-menteeship that happens for two years. But I tell them we're lifelong friends, and I've been paired with um, multiple women, um, which is super important for them to have an outlet, so that if they're, you know, I believe that if they're stuck in the middle of the night and they're in the emergency room, I'm here for you. You can call me. It's And to create a quick relationship like that, like speed dating, mm-hmm. it's actually not that hard, and it's fun to show them that, you know, I like to, to expose, when I'm on faculty, it's like tra- it's, it's like. It's auditioning for the voice. The faculty requirements and expectations are incredibly high, not just on yourself, but among your peers, that you give a rock star talk and that you are engaging and it's not just, you know, you learn how to use PowerPoint for the first time. You really have to prepare these talks. And and I like them to see that, you know, even as an attending, I mean, as an attending and a faculty member, you know, there's still a little bit of stress and all of that. And it's normal. It's okay. And, you know, they watch me walk through it, and I like to, to give that part of um, another perspective, too. I might need to run out the door to go finish a talk, but it's, um, I don't know. I think that relationship is awesome.
1: Well, I know some of the focus uh, of the content at IPOS this year has been on uh, things like arthrogryposis and connective tissue disorders. And as one of your past fellows, I personally know you take care of a lot of those patients. So, for the folks at home, what are some takeaways from some of those talks that you've given they can take back to their practices at home or their learning if they're a resident or well, the, fellow?
6: The coolest thing is that we actually brought attention to some of these syndromes. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about erlo Danlos, We talked about arthro poses. never makes it to the big stage. And this time it did with OI. And, you know, these these surgeries are complex and there's no one book that says hey if you have an eds patient this is exactly what you can do um because they they're a very heterogeneous population so i think one of the take-homes was to was seeing everybody's perspective on things and knowing that there's not one right answer but there there is you know some of these are very rare diseases um and there's less literature out there um so we kind of You know, we had the opportunity for exposure, um, which was awesome. And I think that there was so much interest that I'm hoping that we're going to talk about this more. We've also done um, a lot of things with taking, like, surgical techniques. Like, the OI, nailing of a femoral shaft, is actually the same principles that I use when I'm doing femoral shortening to, to extend a knee. And I think the biggest take-home is, though, you have to you know, work your plan and plan your work. And I think that that message was really clear that these are tough problems and there's not one solution. There's no book to read. And um, you might need to create that book, but um, it, I think it should give you a perspective that there's a lot to do. But you always have to take care of the whole patient.
1: Yeah, I need that book. So yeah. <laughs> the sooner you can get that out, the better. <laughs>
0: So any um, uh, last year you had that great technique surgical technique on the bunion in the correction i <laughs> and, and uh, it's it's actually it's a great video so um, it's, it's on Posen Academy and uh, it's fantastic is that your still your preferred technique yes. and uh, and and I
6: really need somebody to do it, do it for me because my bunion keeps growing <laughs> and my shoe wear is no better than when I put my high heel up there on the podium um, but who knew that bunions would be you know it's so, such a part of my life. Well,
0: it's interesting because that MIS stuff is very in vogue right now. It's, very, it's a, a very hot topic. And so you've, you showed a great way of doing it with minimally invasive techniques, which is awesome, which is fantastic. Well,
6: and it's funny because I, I went back to ask the same question to one of the um, people that, that I know does it a lot. And, you know, he's using a screw now. I, I haven't needed to do that. Um, and I still am having pretty good results so and it's fun it's a fun technique to teach and I like the fact that I can take deformity principles if so if you read the article in J.Phasna there are real deformity principles that shows why show why you have to have that translation so it brings a little bit of under more understanding like well why are you shoving the thing all the way over are you sure it's gonna heal and why in the world would you do that there's actually a basis for it so um, I like to be able to plan things, and I like to be able to execute. And nothing better when you can do both at the same time, and it actually is not that hard. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us here, and uh, look at it, hopefully we'll look forward to seeing you next year as well. I will
6: yeah, be man. here. Thanks for stopping right. by.
1: Welcome back. I am Tyler McDonald, joined by my co-host for this event, Phil Nowicki, and we're joined in the booth today by two of our APP leaders, Valerie Parrish and Tracy Warhoover. Nice to have you with us.
7: Thank you nice you to, to be, be here. here. Yes.
8: Thank you for having us.
0: Well, fantastic. You know, a, a big push has been to educate APPs, especially in Pete's Ortho, and it's been growing so much, but we really haven't talked about it too much, uh, podcasts and things like that. So... Just give us, a, if you guys want to give us a little over a, a perspective of, uh, of where it's come uh, with POSNA and specifically at IAPOS and then where it might be heading.
8: Sure. I can speak to this year's conference. I was the co-chair of the conference this year. We had a sports theme, like focus theme, and it was at three breakout sessions, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The first day was kind of common, like top injuries you would encounter that you would see um, as a clinician kind of diagnostic action, um, you know, as far as clinical exam findings, diagnostic imaging, and kind of, you know, follow up and what you would do in regards to that date that uh, led into day two, which was kind of return to play protocols, practice protocols. Uh, and then day three, which we just uh, concluded, that was talking about uh, recent advances in uh, surgical techniques or treatment of these common sports injuries. And it was very exciting for uh, Valerie and I to see um, the numbers this year were just very impressive. Uh, the first day we had 125 in attendance that's awesome day two was 134 and today was 81 and that has tripled from last year P- prior conferences we were we had a anywhere between 30 to 40 in attendance I don't think we had any more than 40 in attendance. And um, I, I attribute that to just a very strong program. In addition to discussion with the iPod staff, we had previously competed with some other uh, well-attended sessions that APPs had to choose from. Like, you know, they had to make a choice to attend that session versus ours. And we strategically looked at the schedule and scheduled our content outside of that. And I, you know, significantly attribute that to our increase in numbers in addition to the fact that we have seen a number of new APPs in practice. I would say out of this, the 120, 130 we're seeing, I maybe recognize 20 APPs that I had seen at prior conferences. So there's a lot of new uh, faces, which is exciting to see our profession grow like that.
7: And I think a big part of why new APPs are coming to this conference is because it is a great educational opportunity. There's a lot of didactic type sessions, right, where you're learning essentials, pearls, information, but there's also hands-on sessions where if you are doing these skills or procedures, you have a safe place to practice and an expert teacher. Um, the other part of it is is that The content, like Tracy alluded to, is very strong, but also very APP-driven. So we got some great feedback from Dr. Christine Ho, and she said something that... I notice is that the program has developed to where instead of quoting what your attending does or what your surgeon does, you all have ownership of these patients. You're saying, this is what I do. This is my practice. These are my protocols. And it's because we're actually taking over a lot of the management of these you know, post-op patients, follow-up patients. And while that does vary between practices, the APP presence is much stronger. I think a lot of the integration that we have has changed over the last years, but I think it also helps because you guys during training are now working with us, and so we're not seen as competitors or seen as, oh, they help with some things, but we don't really interact with them very much. We're one big cohesive team, and I think that's represented here well. We were at lunch yesterday and we actually sat with uh, a couple of uh, the attendees,
0: uh, the APP attendees, and that was their biggest, what they liked about it so much was that it's being presented by APPs. So we had talked to Tony Riccio about um, some of the hands-on stuff. Do you think a lot of the APPs are getting to the uh, hands-on uh, sessions?
7: Yes, they are. So I'm one of the instructors for Pavlik On The Go, um, which we started doing last year. We got great feedback about it. And so we brought it back again this year. And I think there are a lot of APPs attending that session because they don't get the um, protected time to practice. And learning tips and tricks from people like me, you know, Woody Sankar, people that put these braces on all the time. I found that that's what people wanted to hear the most was, you know, why do you put it on this way? Why do you tell families how to hold the patient? And so really just learning how people extend the treatment by also educating is a big thing that they can get here.
1: Yeah, and that's nice because those sorts of interactions aren't the the things you're going to read in the textbooks or the articles. It's the little nuances that really help to, you know, make it easier on the patient or or even the clinician.
0: What are the kind of future plans to keep expanding this? Because this is
1: great.
7: So I am in charge of IPAWS for this coming year, 2024. And what we have discussed as a group is that we recognize that there is variable education, variable experience coming to the APP sessions. And so next year we are doing three subspecialty days. We're gonna be doing trauma, neuromuscular patients and then a spine uh, subspecialty track. And the goal of that is to kind of provide graduated contents going from essentials to some case discussions or um, evaluations with hands-on sessions but also the idea that if you are practicing in a clinic as an independent provider, these are the main types of patients that are coming through and how to evaluate these patients appropriately or how to you know maybe improve or grow your evaluation so that you can be more efficient with it and get what you need out of that.
1: Really exciting stuff coming from our APP partners in our field and we hope to kind of see this take off and blossom. It's really encouraging to see that you've You know doubled or tripled your numbers just from last year alone. Well thank you guys for joining us in the booth today and uh, wish you success for the rest of the week and we'll hope to see you around.
7: Thank you. Thank you for your
8: time.
1: We're back here in the booth now with uh, Derek Kelly our co-director for this year's IPOS. We've just had our award session and he's going to fill us in with who our winners were this year.
9: Yeah, so guys, as you know, orthopedic surgeons are very competitive, and we can turn anything into a competition, and at IPOST, we do that on uh, three separate occasions, including the Arabella Elite uh, Resident and Fellow case presentation, our Top Gun, which is done on Thursday night. It's a uh, skills lab uh, competition, and then the Author's Preferred Technique, which comes from our faculty. They, prevent the, they present their favorite surgical procedures, and then they're voted on. So for our Arabella Elite uh, case conference, it was Lee Haruno from uh, CHOP presenting a case on um, rotationoplasty for distal femoral osteosarcoma. And then for our top gun, uh, we had stations for uh, pedicle screw placement, for Ilizarov tibial deformity, Ponseti casting, flex nail uh, treatment for femur fracture, uh, the team challenge, which is a complex uh, spine uh, situation where you lose motors in the case and have to deal with it as a team. And then we have arthroscopy, where we use a nanoscope on uh, bell peppers to do a variety of interesting techniques. Uh, and all of our uh, participants are uh, graded and scored by our faculty, and the scores come together to result in our number three finisher, Ian Holyer, a PGY-4 out of Stanford, Marco Gupton, a PGY-5 out of Mountain View Regional in New, Mes- New Mexico, and then Stefano Cardine, a fellow from CHOP. Those are our three uh, Top Gun award winners, and it was a great competition a lot of fun. Uh, for those who have not come to iPost before or perhaps uh, maybe not in a long time, you definitely do to come back and witness Thursday night because it also becomes a costume contest for all of our uh, faculty. And uh, we had some very silly and very enjoyable costumes this year. Uh, this podcast is certainly not going to give uh, any justice to uh, what was displayed uh, in the visual. Um, and then uh, for author's preferred techniques... Today, we had uh, a number of great presentations on uh, both surgical skills as well as some soft skill presentations, and the winner was Javi Masquijo for tibial tubercle periosteum transfer for patella instability surgical uh, video demonstration. So that is the results of the competitions for IPOS 2023. Awesome. Well, congrats
1: to all the winners, and uh, we look forward to some awesome competition uh, next year at IPOS 2024. Well that concludes our content. We've hoped you've enjoyed this special two-part episode of interviews with key folks from iPOS 2023. Hopefully
0: you learned something and hopefully some of you are inspired to come join us next December at iPOS 2024.
1: We want to give a special thanks to the POSNA staff and everyone who has worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this meeting and this podcast happen. See you next year.